Today's lesson text comes from 1 Corinthians, verse 17 through 31. The word of the Lord. Let us listen. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, my brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boast, boast in the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts may be an honor and a glory to you. Amen. So the first thing I need to do in this particular passage is explain the technical logic, and I will try to do it quickly. Paul jumps a bit, but I think it's important enough to trace it out so we're all on the same page. In verse 17, Paul makes the core task of his mission in Corinth the preaching of the gospel. And he centers the gospel, which is shorthand in Christian for the good news, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and the salvation of all who comes to him. Now, Paul centers that good news, that gospel, on the Christ. And that means that for Paul, it's only as a result of Jesus' death that men and women are brought back into a full relationship to God. But verse 30 says that Jesus is the righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now also, for Paul, because Jesus is obedient, he is active in this display of the cross, that Jesus is God's power and wisdom. Verse 24, the Christ, where it skips the the, it doesn't quite sound right in English. Jesus is for Paul in that cross, the very demonstration of those divine attributes. We often hear people talk about Jesus being the penultimate revelation of God on the cross. And for Paul, that's very true. 
Now that for Paul sets up attention. Jesus is the wisdom and the power of God, but Jesus has been rejected by the wisdom and the power of man. And so the two must come into crash and conflict. Now in verse 23, Paul points out a few ways that there were conflicts here. First, for the Jewish thinkers, there's the issue, especially in his day, they expected the Messiah to be a great warrior, go beat up those Romans and kick them out. They had very little use for Jesus's love your neighbor as yourself kind of speaking. And to just add injury to insult, a crucified person in Jewish thought is cursed, Deuteronomy 21:33. Cursed is he who hung upon the tree. For Paul's Jewish brethren and fellow thinkers, Christ was a stumbling block in that instead of being the Son of Man coming in all of his glory to beat up every single bad guy there ever was, he seems to be the really, really nice guy who has it in terribly miserably for him. In the same way, Paul is in Corinth. He's not in Israel anymore. He's preaching to Greeks. And for Greeks, they could understand, perhaps a little bit better, the detachment, the esoteric aspect of Jesus' teaching. So they would, they would very much, like many people today, be like, oh, I love Jesus and think he is a great teacher. Paul had been to Athens in Acts 17 before he comes to Corinth in Acts 18. And one of the things Luke says there is that Athenians love to sit around all day and listen to new ideas. For those kind of people, they, they can totally get half the Jesus thing with the love your neighbor as yourself and the great parables, and they get into that. But when Paul was preaching the cross and getting into not so much what Jesus said as what he did, those ideas of death and resurrection being a part of divine salvation and God working to redeem mankind it's the exact opposite of what the Greeks would ever think. For them, it, it, it would just seem silly to the Socratic, the Epicurean, and other thinkers. But Paul, moving on, doesn't just show this conflict of God's wisdom revealed in Christ and human wisdom revealed in human rejection of Christ. Paul is showing in his argument here that God is overturning human wisdom. Verse 21, we get to the core. The world has failed to find him for all of its wisdom. In Acts 17, one of the things Paul finds when he goes to Athens is the idol to the unknown God. And Paul's pointing out to these Corinthians that though many of these people who are wise in their own eyes scoff at the gospel, many smart thinkers today, just like the Greeks, for all their wits and cleverness, clever people still seem to never discover anything about God. Paul is pointing out that this conflict between divine and human wisdom has turned humans, in fact, the other way. No matter where they're going out there, they're never going to find him. Paul points out, too, that this is not something that's occurring in a mental vacuum, where, okay, we're just talking about wisdom and esoteric stuff. We're talking about real effects on people's lives. So there's also the difference between God's power, which in the church in Corinth is redeeming, is healing, 
in today's world is doing those same things. And human power, which often is corrupting, which relies on the force of Caesar and whatever coercions it can get. And we see in Paul's argument here that God is working through those things that are considered foolish, though without human wisdom, powerless, without human power, ignoble. So not those who are sitting up in, in the great fancy places that humans think are important. It is by those things that God is choosing to work to overturn that which opposes him. Verses 26 through 28. And Paul sums this technical bit up with his point. There is no place for pride in human achievement before God. Verse 30. So it's not by any wisdom, power, etc. on the part of people that we are saved. You are in Christ Jesus by God's act, as Paul sums this up. So that's the big technical argument that's going on. Paul jumps around a bit. Hopefully that makes it clear. We got your logic, Paul, but why did you make this argument? And this is what I want to kind of more focus on today. We have to put this one into the context of what's going on on this church in Corinth. They are a divided church. They have divided over their human leadership. They have divided over their different types of theological thinking on issues like the resurrection. There's sub-issues like gifts. Oh, this person's a better Christian because he has more gifts than that person. They are separating to the point of heresies where the gospel of the cross is just completely getting tossed out and something else is getting preached. It's into that divided church, and it's in the chapter that we read last Sunday where Paul points everyone into Christ as the core of their unity. It is here that Paul is putting this argument that God's wisdom, power, and holiness alone is the only thing the church can boast in, but even more than that, by accepting it, the church must also overturn any fleshly claim to those things. Because I am convinced, rather strongly here, that pointing to God's act and the sovereignty of God, to use the highfalutin words, is a unifying force and a purifying force in the church. We see Paul here in a church that is divided. He's already called for unity in Christ, but where does he escalate his, his, his logic? He goes to God's sovereignty, to God's act. We see in the words here, God shows, God shows. You are in Christ by God, focusing on the prime mover, as it were. We see this in times historically that the church has been divided. Augustine pointed famously to God's sovereignty when he was debating Pelagius. It's unknown to the average layman, but many people that the Catholic Church calls saints, like Bernard or others I can't think of off the top of my head, they pointed to the same thing. Luther, when he was moving and shaking the Reformation, and it seems like a point of divisiveness to some, but his his Reformation was a rallying call to the five solas. Among those, sola Christe, only Christ. Sola gratia, only by grace. Sola Deo Gloria, only for God's own glory and not because he owes anything to us. 
You see the same movements throughout history in early American colonies. People may have some opinions on what they imagine about the Protestants, I mean about the Puritans, but one of their main things was because God's sovereignty ordained the natural order, it was ordained that men would have rights within that order. It's part of the American character. And even in schools that you think, if you know a smattering of church history, would be very against it, like Wesley or the Methodist, no. You'll find within them that, well, they will not use the same terms and they have some very strong technical debates. Still at the core level, the idea that God did it reigns. No, not one faithful preacher will deny this scripture or this argument. In fact, sometimes I think the reason the disagreements stir up so much about it, and it, it, we seem to come back to church divisions clawing at this issue, is perhaps a bit of irrepentance and overattachment to human wisdom, particularly human power and human nobility. And I will make the argument on that point here today. If we go to toss out this aspect of 1 Corinthians, that the church must find unity in God's wisdom, in God's power revealed by the cross in Christ, we throw out not only salvation through faith alone, but we introduce some really nasty stuff. Because if God's foolishness is wiser than human's wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength, what happens if we go with the one that we want to? Well, human wisdom. If the church rests solely on human wisdom, assuming that God's foolishness can't save it, we'll find a great many follies come in. The church will slowly start to drift, as I have seen in many cases, from a stance of assurance and knowing that it knows God in Christ, to slowly becoming like all those thinkers Paul was talking about, where the church doesn't quite know God, but we have an opinion like the rest of them. And Christ slowly in that witness, as Paul says, the cross of Christ might be emptied of its power, in verse 17, eventually resting on human wisdom drags the church down to, well, we don't know anything like everyone else. And if that wasn't bad enough, human wisdom also introduces some things. It was in the seat of human wisdom in Athens that there was idol upon idol upon idol upon idol. The ideas of how we can please God, of what actions are good and, and will produce salvation, start coming in when a church is, is clawing on human wisdom and rejecting salvation through faith. What things will churches find themselves entrapped to? Must we go on these pilgrimages? Must we do these works? That alone may be bad, but the second thing it would subject the church to is human power. That would bring into the church all the evils of Rome, and historically we have seen it when the church is trusted in the sword to save itself from the Saracen out in the Promised Land in the Crusades. And perhaps today, the one that traps us the most is Paul says, not many of you are noble, but say the church wants to rest on nobility. 
Well, delusions of noble races and superiority of one man versus another based off of what he owns or what he says or human wisdom, what he thinks, or human power, who he can hurt. Are those the things that we want to trap the church to? No, I think it is no accident that Martin Luther King Jr., a staunch Baptist who was by no means a Calvinist in great many ways, still wrote his thesis on Karl Barth, a snarky Calvinist. And it was by the synthesis of those two, MLK Jr. and his dialogue with Barth, that he as a speaker was able to pull down the idols in his day. It, it was by focusing on what Christ did in the cross that allowed him to point men to the equality in humility before the cross. And I feel very much that for the church to regain effective witness in our day, it will be the same for us. We will not find unity or the power of the cross in relying or satisfying what humans deem wisdom. Because we have to think about the nature of God in these passages and what's being revealed on, to us about this. The real thing is God is moving in this in his absolute sovereign and wonderful power. Sometimes I imagine what would be the what would be the kickback for the wise people? Because imagine the protest. Lord, we we were wise and we thought we would help you build your kingdom by our wisdom. We expected that in the church, everyone would look at us and go like, well, yeah, I mean, Jesus chose of those 11 disciples, the greatest and best thinkers of the world. Of course, Christianity would succeed. But that's not what happened. Perhaps if it was left to human will to choose who would build the church, Jesus would go and pick the 11 mightiest warriors. And then, of course, Christianity would spread around the world because those great sultans rode and conquered the many people. Or perhaps those folks who are somebodies or something, movie stars or politicians, well, if Jesus had chosen the 12 disciples out of them, they of course would have power to change the world. But that's not what happened. Consider your own calls, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Things, not even people, things. Imagine how many kings talk about people as things that are not, nothings, nobodies, to reduce to nothing the things that are. Paul points to... God's sovereignty and the fact that he makes the decision on his prerogative, moving through Christ and his cross, doing the work of redemption to himself. He takes it and then he says that shows a contrast between what God's wisdom and power elects and what God finds important and how he makes decisions is at odds with how humans 
envision wisdom, envision power, and make decisions about intrinsic values of people. And Paul points out that this should unify the church because there can be no division in the church unless it is over human senses of who's valuable and who isn't, human ideas of who's wise and who isn't, and human ideas about who's a somebody and who's a nothing. And Paul says that if the church is to have unity and get alongside God, it must admit to itself that in many ways it is foolish, it is weak, it is a nothing. And that is why it is so amazing that God is acting through it. The key here is all must go to the cross. The key here is unity must be found at the foot of the cross. And Paul will spend the rest of his letter fighting these divisions by pointing again and again to the centrality of the cross and the fact that it is an act of God, not man. I'll leave you with a final illustration from a preacher who was rather famous on this one. We have no issue whatsoever imagining that the devils after the, the angels that rebelled against God after being tossed down to earth are locked in hell forever. We have no problem with God's justice saying that they shall never come out. It has been a great many thousands, well, it's been a thousand and like 800 years since the theologian last said anything about a devil getting out, and even then he only spoke of mercy. We as humans, when Adam and Eve sinned, were not tossed down and subjected to the same justice, but it was purely a decision of God's mercy that he whispered to Eve, your child shall strike the serpent on its head. That decision of what happens to angels and happens to men never seems to come up when we talk about predestination or election or free will or anything else. But if you would talk about works, if you would talk about holiness, this may strike you as an odd way of saying it, but a one-time angel surely can do better and more good in the heavenly realm than a creature made of dust and breath that will return to dust. And yet it is only by God's mercy and no obligation that that angelic being suffers the whole wrath and justice of God with no hope ever. And that weak, that fallible, that forgettable nothing of dust and breath, God has chosen in his mercy not only to redeem, but to come down and dwell in with the fullness of who he is in his son, Jesus Christ, to lift him up. The grand drama of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is cosmic. That same God who chose to lift the race of Adam and drop the race of Satan is in the same way working that cosmic lifting up that shows it is only through his power. We get a glance of who God is in that action. And his invitation is for all of us to join it today. It doesn't matter if you're a Wesleyan, a Lutheran, a Calvinist. What matters is Christ and that it is in his cross alone that peace can be found. Let us pray.